Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first ever episode of Monocle Moments. My name is Jaap van Beek, aka James Monocle, and in this podcast, I talk to the most interesting people I can possibly find, and I dig as deep as I can to bring you a fascinating listening experience. Now, in this podcast today, I'm talking to none other than Rachel Knight. Rachel has been one of my very best friends for many years now, and she's one of the smartest people that I personally know. In this conversation, we get into some deep psychology and mental health related items, but we also discuss our favorite books and some powerlifting. Now, she currently has an honors BA in psychology, a master's of science in applied psychology, and she's got a couple of years of working experience in both clinical and research settings. Now, she's planning to start to do a PhD in September. Once she's finished that, she's going to do a doctorate in clinical psychology. Very impressive. Um, However, we do want to put a disclaimer out there, which is that despite uh, the fact that Rachel has extensive knowledge and experience, she's smart enough to know that she may not know everything, so she is happy to take correspondence relating to any unconsidered viewpoints or research that may change her perspectives. Now, if you yourself are struggling with a mental health problem, We would advise you to contact your doctor or talk to someone you trust, uh, but please know that we are no substitute for a trained professional. With all that being said, please enjoy the first ever episode of Monocle Moments with Rachel Knight. All right. It's recording. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show and welcome everyone to the first ever episode of Monocle Moments. So um, yeah, as you all know, my guest is Rachel Knight, uh, one of my best friends for a very long time. And ever since I started thinking about making the podcast, which is a little over a year ago, I wanted you to be the first guest, but I've just never told you. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So tell me so tell me more about what made you want to do this podcast because I I thought that this was just you were in lockdown and you'd run out of things to do so you were like let's make a podcast but it's good to know you've actually had some more thought behind this than I thought. No, I've wanted to do this podcast for a long time because uh, one of the things I love doing is talking to people. That's why I always call you endlessly and some other people are on that list too. And uh, I think in the end, I learn most from talking to other people. And I realized that maybe it would be fun to share that with more people. And uh, I also just love listening to podcasts myself. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to take part in the scene. That's true. I do love a podcast. I also love that the first question on the podcast was asked to me instead of me asking it to my guest. <laughs> well, is... Also, well, this is the thing, because, like, I mean, I guess, okay, maybe I'm the first guest, but, like, you're also kind of the first guest because it's your first one. So, you know, very right. I think it's important right. that people hear a bit about you if, if you're going to be the this one hosting true. it. This is true. So, um, Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, give us an introduction here. So, I guess I've lived a bit of an interesting life so far or not that interesting like but moderately it's pretty interesting trust me moderately interesting not as interesting as it could be but um so i was born in the uk and then i moved to france when i was 13 moved to ireland when i was 18 um and studied psychology and then did a master's in psychology i'm now um i'm now kind of working uh, as a research assistant in a in the Cognition and Brain Science Unit in Cambridge, um, doing some pretty cool work, and I've worked as an assistant psychologist as well. Uh, so I'm kind of at that point in my career where I'm pre-doctorate and hoping to start uh, some kind of doctoral level training soon. On the side, um, I, I watch a lot of Netflix, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I also do, um, I'm, a, I'm a competitive powerlifter, um, and yeah that i think that's pretty much all there is to know about me and there's some things in the pipeline right uh, that's definitely something i want to mention what kinds of the things career related things powerlifting related things both oh i mean look <laughs> yeah i mean i guess at the moment the for the career stuff i'm i'm in kind of a weird position cuz so it was always my dream I always thought I was going to do a doctorate in clinical psychology and that's the thing I've been focused on even since I was in my master's the last few years. Just been thinking about getting onto clinical training because it's quite difficult to get on in the UK. Only about 15% of people get on every year. Um, that's very few. And yeah. you, 
yeah, and you have to apply probably for three or four years before you'll get on. Um, so all I've been thinking about is doing that and getting towards that. And then this year, so I started uh, started the new job at the Cognition and Brain Science Unit in September. And one of the things in my brain when I started was, nope, I'm not going to do a PhD. I don't want to do a PhD right now. I just need to do the clinical doctorate. That's like, I need to focus on that. I need to do that three years of clinical training. Like I need to get to being a clinical psychologist. And then, um, yeah, two months into the job, decided to apply for a PhD <laughs> because I love to make myself suffer, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so applied for a PhD uh, at the University of Cambridge and got it but i'm still waiting on funding so to, but to get a phd first you have to be like recommended to the university to do a phd and like you have to be offered it but then you have to wait to make sure that there's actually the money for you to do it and we should have heard by now but uh given the pleasant the present climate um yeah yeah no uh everything's taking a little bit longer science is kind of um it's kind of chaotic right now um and kind yeah, of a big mess. I suppose it has quite some impact on being able to do experiments, especially. It really does, especially for us. All of our everything that we do is human subjects. So, uh, yeah. So there's one part of my job that's pretty much completely stopped at the moment. Um, that's is... the part where. Um, so it's one project that I'm on, looking at uh, emotion processing in uh, young people and also their social cognition. And so that we were doing, we were going into schools and testing. The best way to test for that is more efficient to do group testing. So you test maybe 12 kids at once. Um, and we obviously can't do that at the moment. So that's completely stopped. Luckily, the other part of my job is uh, another project that we've got in the pipeline, which is going to look at uh, a particular psychological technique and how it might impact on emotion processing in young people. Uh, which will be really cool. And we're also going to look at the neurological effects of that. And so can you, can you expand a little bit there, emotion processing in, in young people? So at the moment, um, it's part of a bigger project, which has been about mindfulness and resilience in adolescents. And the project that I'm working on at the moment is seeing if there's a particular part of mindfulness um, which always comes out as be in the literature as being important or being... Um, a real key component and that's something called uh, psychological decentering. Okay, can you unpack that for the people that don't know what it is? Yeah, so uh, I guess in a lot of psychological therapies this thing exists but it's called lots of different things in different ones so in, in, in acceptance commitment therapy it's called diffusion, in CBT it's called psychological distancing and all it is is creating psychological distance between yourself and your thoughts so instead of you're having the thought um oh, I'm, I'm, I'm useless, I'm never going to succeed. You kind of, you create that distance between yourself and your thoughts and you think to yourself, okay, so I'm noticing that I'm having this thought that I'm useless and I'm noticing that I'm having these thoughts that I'll never succeed. And it, even that it creates, you can see how it creates a kind of a, a distance between yourself and your thoughts. And there's lots of different ways to do that. And that can be a very easy way of managing negative emotions because I think it would be the the idea that you can make negative emotions go away or that you can in some way control your emotions is just f from everything that I've read and from everything I've experienced, I think yeah. not true. Um, yeah. The only thing you can do is learn to manage your negative thoughts and feelings better. I think it's something that's uh, especially poignant right now in the present climate. Lots of people are stuck uh, at home with their thoughts. And um, for that reason, me and um, my supervisor... Uh, Dr. Mark Bennett are actually writing an article about uh, psychological decentering for one of the kind of the big broadcasting uh, newspaper in Ireland. So we're going to try and cool. try and get decentering to the masses a bit if we can at this time. But yeah, so we're working on that. And at the moment, we're very much in the pilot stage of that project. So we're doing a lot of piloting, a lot of... There's lots of small things that we need to get so, done. So and it's Could you give some nice. examples, the kind of things you're working on then now? So at the moment, I'm so I'm working on the way we're going to do the project is we're going to have an experimental group who do the decentering training because we're we're trying to figure out if we can do like a six week training on this creating psychological distance um, yeah. and whether it makes an impact on mental health or resilience or a bunch of other things um, and the way that we're doing yeah so we're going to have an experimental group and a control group and the experimental group we need lots of different exercises and lots of different ways of practicing the uh, psychological distancing 
stuff. And so I'm writing those at the moment or looking them up from other studies, um, trying to write them all down. And then at some stage I'll have to record them because we're going to do them sort of like a podcast. We're going to, yeah, we're going to podcast the the exercises and have people do them every week so i'm just trying to get those together we're also including some mindfulness element elements in that so we're trying to get the um trying to get those exercises together so lots and then some kind of more boring nuts and bolts stuff so trying to get together like a a list like a protocol of what what are all the things we're going to do it's lots of different stuff so in Mm. in some ways it's good that i've got all that to do okay yeah, yeah Okay, it's interesting. So, so you just mentioned dealing with uh, negative emotions, and then the concept you just talked about. Are there any other ways that you know, or from the research you've done, that work especially well in dealing with negative thoughts? Well, some of it's down to. I think a lot of it is down to philosophy more than anything, okay. like your philosophy about emotions and how you experience them. Because I think a lot of the time people very much can have an idea that it's it's that idea of, of oh I can get rid of my negative feelings and mm-hmm. thoughts I can I can get rid of those I can I can make myself not have them or I can change them and I don't think that's particularly representative of the human experience I think it's incredibly difficult to get rid of negative thoughts and feelings and a lot of our bad habits a lot of the things that we do are actually things that we're doing to try to get away from negative emotions. So things like what you know, not just watching two episodes of TV, watching an entire series of TV. Um, yeah. We all do it, and this is the thing. This is not coming from a place where we all do it. Like watch an entire series yeah, yeah, of TV yeah. um, so that you don't have to think. Um, yeah, you know, having yeah. a glass of wine or five, like so you don't have to don't have to experience your own emotions. A lot of things we do are actually just kind of running away from or trying not to feel our negative emotions because they're because they suck. They're difficult to deal with. They like they're really yeah. tough, but I think yeah, there's a certain amount of it that's just about thinking about how how negative experiences and emotions are part of the human condition and they are normal like it is to an extent it is not it is normal to feel anxious like Mm -hmm. i think you know obviously there's always a there's a limit but like it's normal to feel anxious it's normal to feel sad it's normal to feel completely discombobulated in especially at the present time um yeah Yeah. so i guess some of it is just thinking about how you relate to your negative emotions um so so if, if you get negative emotions, uh, I'm sorry to just stop you there for a second. Do you, do you, would you agree with the statement that the moment that you have negative emotions, you kind of have to face them straight away and go through them? Or is that hmm. inaccurate? Because I hear some people on the internet talk about that, you know, like, like the moment you have something negative or something like that, you have to face the emotion and just experience it completely and then it will go away. I think yes and no. I think sometimes that's true. Like, I think, well, it's kind of a prerequisite to this in that you've noticed that you've had the negative emotion. And a lot of people actually aren't that in touch with their emotional state. So they kind of, something bad or they'll start to feel bad and it's almost automatic that they'll start doing something to make it go away. Um, So like, just an example, like you, you've just gone through a really bad breakup uh, and... You know, you're having a day where you're feeling like, you know, you're not feeling so good. So you download a dating app um, and you don't even realize that you're doing it to like to, to get away from the negative <laughs> feelings that you're having. But you yeah. you are. Um, so I guess I think a lot of the time it can be helpful to kind of sit with the negative emotion. However, right. I think that there are definitely limits to that. And I definitely think that there are moments where that's not safe. Um, so for example, something like distraction, which I've talked about a bit. So this idea of like, you know, watching a few episodes of TV or going to the gym or like those distraction techniques can actually be very useful if it's in the context of, if I don't do this, um, I'll hurt myself or I'll relapse or I'll do something that's bad. Then I think it's all about being able to use techniques flexibly. So distraction in itself isn't bad, but if you only ever use distraction, if you're only ever trying to like distract yourself from your negative emotions, it's not going to be good. Um, 
and if you always face your emotions 100% all of the time, I think to an extent that becomes bad because you have no other strategies. It's all about kind of, I think it's all about being flexible with what you do, but I think to an extent, yeah, I think, I think the idea of kind of facing your negative emotions isn't, it's not wrong. Like it's, it's definitely the case in some, it's definitely sometimes the case, but not, I wouldn't say always. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you feel comfortable, I'd like to talk a little bit about your own uh, journey in terms of uh, mental health. Mm-hmm. Would you be comfortable sharing yeah. just yeah, your experience? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I guess I was always an anxious kid. I was like, since I, since. I was very, very young. I remember always worrying about things much more than other people did um, okay. and thinking about things a lot more than other people did um, For to, to a point that like wasn't kind of normal for the age that I was. Or I don't know, I mean, maybe it was, but it always felt everything was... I was also very kind of... I was a... I was very in touch with my own emotions and everyone else's. Like, um, it really distressed me to see anyone else distressed, like, to a really high level. Like, to an extent, I've I figured out recently something about why I don't like horror films, because I've never liked horror films. I just can't manage them. Um, yeah. And I figured out that one of the reasons that that is, I mean, uh, to an extent, like, I kind of don't, don't really enjoy being frightened and all that, but I also, I find it so distressing to watch other people be frightened. I just cannot... I emphasize that so much. I actually just can't manage it. It's too much for me. Um, And, like, it's really, like, overstimulating in a way for me. So, like, I guess I always had that, even when I was a young kid. Um, Like, to the point that, you know, and then I I kind of think I was about 14 or 15 and I looked up depression and I'd never heard of it. Like, or, like, it was, like, the first time I was kind of hearing about it. And I looked up Hmm. and I looked up the symptoms and I was like, oh, I have (laughs) all of these. Um, Okay. Right, um, so then kind of was dealing with it by myself until I was about 16 and then um, ended up finally telling my parents about it and um, was able to go and see a really great psychologist um, yeah. and was saw a psychologist for a couple of years, got a lot better, um, went to college, was pretty much well for all of my first year of college. Um, and then just because of a lot of uh, stresses and various stuff going on, um, a lot of kind of relationship stuff, a lot of stuff about the way that I related to other people. Um, I've always been a helper, uh, but I was taking on a lot of relationships that were pretty much just all about me helping the other person and never getting anything back, and then me getting increasingly distressed by that. Um, And them asking for increasing and increasing amounts from me to the point that I just couldn't... I wasn't able to um, manage my own stuff. Yeah. So I guess... Um, so I guess lots of stuff around that, um, and then kind of my mental health then started to deteriorate in second year, got to the point halfway through third year where, um, I really had a complete, like, complete breakdown. Um, I still, funnily enough, I was always a very high-functioning depressive, um, like, very, very high-functioning, was able to finish college, um, lots of people aren't, um, but yeah, I, I kind of... There was a point in in my third year of college where I was like, I don't know if I can keep going. I might need to take a year out. Um, managed to manage to keep going anyway, yeah. um, thanks to a lot of great support from my parents and from. I was lucky to be at a university where we had really good access to um, psychology resources, and then kind of from then started getting better. Um, and yeah, pretty like I mean I think. Yeah, I think kind of pretty much I'm sort of fully recovered now. I was on, um, in third year, I started taking um, Citalopram, like an SSRI, which I found very, very helpful. It really helped me sleep and then helped my energy levels get better. um, And came off that about this time last year. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I'm like a lot better now. But then that, and that doesn't mean that I never feel sad. And that doesn't mean that I never feel anxious or stressed um but when i do now i firstly have the tools to manage it and i also have um it's it's like to a normal level that you would expect 
yeah. rather yeah, than so what, being all the time. I'd like to mention two things. The first thing is actually that when we got to know each other, how old you were? Maybe sixteen. I was, I was seventeen when we met. Yeah, so we hung out for what, like two years before you went off to college, and mm -hmm. I think that wasn't, uh, in hindsight, maybe your best time, even though, like you said, you're a very high-functioning, uh, depressed person, you got the highest uh, grade in high school, you were the smartest kid, you're still one of the smartest kids I know, uh, that's why Thanks. I love talking to you also so much, because you just have these interesting insights, and then... Um, Yeah, the, the thing I was going to say is that even though I knew and you told me, like, in all of my interactions with you, I didn't necessarily notice it in the way that, um, like, if you read about depression, you see it a certain way. But whenever we were hanging out together, I felt so at ease and and comfortable. I have no idea what that adds to the story, but I, I felt like mentioning no, it's a, it. it's a really good, it's a really interesting insight. I think, I think mental health stuff is um it really i was very lucky in a lot of ways um because when i was in school like my mum was my mum was always there like she was always um you know like i had i had a parent at home who wasn't working a lot and also uh after that my you know my dad stopped working so i had you know two fully engaged parents we weren't the kind of family where I could just not come, like, n not go to school or not not sit at the table for dinner. Like, it just wasn't that sort of family. Yeah. I think, you know, I think I really struggled for a period in, um, in my second to last year of school where I sort of was developing some pretty disordered eating habits. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, pretty much starving myself, like, was trying to not eat at all. But yeah. I couldn't fully get away with it because my family were just not a family where I could not have dinner, like, or not, yeah. um, you yeah, know, like, so not not engage in kind of going out for dinner or going places. Um, so in some way that really, that really supported me and meant that, even when I was at my worst in school, I couldn't really, um, sorry, one sec. But yeah, anyway, um, yeah. so yeah, I guess in that way I was always very lucky. Um, yeah. also I was, to be honest, I was lucky to meet you because you had such like a good energy and like you always, to be honest, like Yeah, I don't know. I always worry about what would have happened if I hadn't met you because, like, I was very much... I was so withdrawn, like, You're before I met you. too sweet to be like, there. <laughs> no, honestly, hey, I'm just telling her how it is. Like, you you know this. Like, at least once a year, I'm like, thanks. Like, thanks for being yeah. my friend. Like, you completely actually saved my life. Like, because I guess Lord, before I, I met mean... you, I was very withdrawn at school. Like, yeah. I wasn't really... Like, I had a couple of friends, but I wasn't... I wouldn't really engage with people. I spent all my time in the library. I never, like, never left the library. And you're the only person who was able to, like... I mean, you didn't quite have to pick me up and put me over your shoulder, but, like... Uh, yeah, like, you were the person who was like, come on, let's go outside. Like, let's let's go yeah. and do this. Let's go and do that. Like, you always yeah, had so much true. energy. I think yeah, it was yeah, yeah. easier for me in yeah. a lot of ways. Because I'm of really you, glad so. to hear that. That's nice. Yeah. But I think I still feel like I have to just quickly rectify what I said earlier because it came out mm -hmm. a little bit wrong. Uh, what I think I meant to say is that knowing what was going on with you throughout, I I guess I was maybe less worried than some people might feel like they have to be because mm -hmm. I had so much kind of like faith in you. Yeah, that, just that full stop. I just had a lot of faith in you and how you were doing mm -hmm. things and working on yourself. Um, yeah. And I, th I think that's a good segue to uh, one of the things that interests me a lot is kind of like, okay, so how much can you actually influence something like this? Like how much, uh, how much of it is, for instance, just tools you're using and how much is just like, okay, it's bad luck. You happen to have this brain and so you're going to feel more depressed. I think it's a lot of things because I think I was incredibly lucky in a lot of ways. Like the, so the family stuff I was talking about. So like having that structure and that support around me. Um, my mom was her, like my psychologist said to my mom, she needs to exercise. Uh, so we started going to these, um, these like exercise dance classes at this yeah. gym near us. And that helped a lot. So 
Um, so that helped. I was lucky enough to to be in a family where I had the money to see a, a private psychologist, um, mm. a private English speaking psychologist in the south of France, which is it's no joke. Um, it's, it's not cheap. Um, so I was in those ways. I was incredibly lucky because I think a lot of recovery and management of mental health is down to having access to psychological services, um, having access access to exercise having a good support system around you. And those were things that I, I was really lucky to have. Um, and I think to an extent, I think there are people who are more prone to depression and people who are more at risk in their mental health. And I absolutely agree that that's the case. And, you know, there are biological factors. Um, but I think a lot of it can be managed, but it's it depends on yeah you know, it depends on your resources it depends on what's available for you so so i was just uh, lucky i think so looking back at yourself if you kind of have to apply the more um uh, if you have to apply the more 80 20 kind of rule of thinking what do you think maybe the two three things that made the biggest impact hmm. i think social support like yeah. I was, I had, you know, I had some people who were really shit in my life, but I had some really amazing people who really kept me going and even, and like my family as well. So, even, so when I was in third year of college, um, during my exam season, my mom came over just for a few days and just even small things like, so one of the days when I was out of college, she tidied my room, yeah. um, which was like. I was referred to it so when like when my mental health's bad like I always refer to my room as my depression crevice um because like it'll just be like clothes all over the floor sheets haven't been changed in yeah, yeah. months like takeaway boxes everywhere cuz I just can't cook um like yeah. yeah just so she like she tidied the depression crevice um and even that like even something so small like that can like it can make such a difference to someone like and she filled up my fridge with like um, like ready meals and stuff so that I like a kind of healthy ready meal so that I had stuff to eat I had um, just even small things like that were so so helpful so I guess yeah that social support would be huge for me exercise is huge for me and like I'm not someone who thinks that mental health difficulties can be cured with exercise that's just not yeah. me but I think exercise is just incredibly... Even I've seen in the last few weeks how my mental health has deteriorated not being able to lift weights. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just exercise so important. And as much as possible, just keeping up a routine. Um, so it's it's really hard sometimes you, you sometimes you need people to help you but like just yeah. making sure you keep up a routine and also sometimes frankly medication like it it can help so much like yeah, obviously yeah. it doesn't help everyone and it's not a fix all at all like always if you're going to be on medication see if you can get some kind of psychological intervention as well it works much better that way um but yeah like sometimes medication can really that can just, really help just jump start it so to say yeah like it really even for me it just um it just made me sleep better more than anything and like yeah. it was like i could it was like coming out of a lot of people who like you know a lot of people who've experienced this like they they'll talk about brain fog um yeah like when you just can't you just can't think you can't make decisions you can't study you just you can't think and it it, it kind of it cut through the brain fog for me so i was actually able to think for the first time so i was actually able to kind of battle the thoughts better in some way um or like manage the thoughts better and, um, and do you think yeah. medication should be a, a longer term thing or do you always think it should only be this amount of time and then you should try with that again hmm. i think it varies depends on the person um so some people only need it for a short time um or it can be incredibly useful. One of the things my soul, my psychologist used to say was um, she'd always recommend it if people were in a very bad situation that they couldn't get out of. So, like, someone close to them had just died. They were in a really, like, maybe abusive household. Like, they can't get away from any of this. She'd be like, f like, I think that maybe that might be the right thing. Um, okay. So some people only needed a very short term. Um, for me, there was a natural point where I felt that, I could try without it. Um, 
the the right sort of time to try this by the way uh folks is when the sun's coming back so around this time of year they always recommend that you come and come off it as the sun's coming back um because winter is like more depressing. it's a depression breeding bra- breeding is, ground is it anyway. actually yeah well like i mean i think lots of people find they feel lower in in winter because of the sunlight and the vitamin d um so a lot of it is i think there's a lot of research about that um yeah, just because it's dark all the time. People don't so, function well. So you well. should supplement on, on, on vitamin D, or is that not... Yeah, I have a very good friend who's a doctor. She's a GP. She's an excellent GP. And she would always recommend vitamin D supplements, especially okay. if you're living somewhere where there's not that much sun. Um, like England or the Netherlands. Like yes, ourselves. exactly, like England or the Netherlands. But yeah, she would always recommend um, a vitamin D supplement. Just, it, you know, it can't hurt. And... So yeah, um, people recommend that if you're going to come off an SSRI, you do it this sort of time of year. Um, But some people need to stay on them. Some people try to come off them and it just doesn't work. Or some people are on medications. Also, I'm only really speaking right now about SSRIs, which are only the frontline intervention. There's Mm -hmm. lots of other medications. Um, You know, your tricyclics, your antipsychotics, your um, lots of other things that um that i can't speak about i don't know um because i don't know the research um so i guess it's it's all down to the person and i'd say just make sure you get a lot of advice don't do it by yourself as well go to go to your gp go to your doctor and make sure you're getting help um Yeah, yeah yeah and i did the same and make sure also for the love of god do not stop all in one go like taper slowly okay slowly does it yeah so i actually have a question about that because uh you've uh I saw on your LinkedIn that you've mm-hmm. done quite some uh, help uh, call center kind of like yeah. psychological help things. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just describe a little bit what that looked like? I was a phone volunteer and we used to take, so we used to take phone calls and we also used to take instant messaging, which funnily enough, most of our traffic came through instant messaging. Really? It was about, I think, 60 or 70% uh, people would IM rather than wanting to phone. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, I think uh, having quite yeah. a young user base um, definitely meant that we, yeah, people felt more comfortable IMing a lot of the time. And so, so would they be asking for advice or for or what, what kind of things came through there? So it was lots of different things. Um, we were in quite a good position in that our, basically we weren't allowed to give advice. Um which in some in some ways sometimes made the job a lot easier because if people wanted advice about relationships or about um, like you could you could give someone information if they wanted mm-hmm. information about something so for example what is my college counselling service what is um, where can I get this what charity can help me with this like we could give information but we can't give advice right um, makes sense so that was it was great a lot of the time but for example obviously a proportion of our calls were um were suicide essentially like people who were kind of on the edge on the brink Mm. um or who were really thinking about something and we weren't allowed to tell them not to um our official policy is that we don't give advice um there were a number of reasons for that, though, um, and I actually think it's a very effective policy. Um, yeah. So, essentially, when someone calls you and talk and talks to you about that, it might be the first time they're talking to someone about it, and it might be, or it might be something that they've spoken to a lot um, about with their family and friends. But their family and friends all the time, whenever they say, it, "Are like, don't, don't do that, no, don't do that," and they never actually get to have a conversation about it. So yeah. a lot of the time it might be the first time they actually get to have a conversation about um, about how they're feeling. And kind of they've never had people ask before, okay, so do you have a plan? What do you think will happen if you do it? Like, what do you think are the different outcomes here? Um, and a lot of the time it can actually be very therapeutic for someone to have that conversation. Um, obviously, there's a proportion of the time where that doesn't, you know, that doesn't work. But also... I think as much as possible, obviously, if you can stop someone from killing themselves, that's usually the right thing. But yeah. also, it, it takes that person's choice away from them. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's always, it's it's an option. You have to treat it like a valid option for the caller. Because yeah. that's the only way they can talk themselves through it, really. Yeah. 
So uh, one of the reasons I'm asking is what I'm always curious about is I don't have a lot of experience with actual one-on-one psychologists, right? Uh, where, where you, I, I've never really had a, a session or anything. Uh, and so in being helpful myself for the people around me, which is obviously not the same as at all the same, but what I'm curious about is to what extent is it just like you just mentioned listening and having a conversation, which I feel like very often for a lot of people makes them feel better, just literally listening, acknowledging, understanding. And to what extent um, is it actually giving advice, being a psychologist? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I think it depends on it depends on who you are. Depends on what kind of psychologist you are, because I think there's there's a lot of distinctions. So for example, someone like a therapist or a counselor, um, a lot of the time that is just about listening. That's just about okay. kind of having someone. Um, kind of unload and then maybe giving some general advice um, or kind of employing some techniques Um, but a lot of the time it's just about letting someone unload Um, if you're a clinical psychologist um, then that's about being trained in evidence-based techniques um, that will help someone to kind of um, kind of help someone and give them the techniques to help themselves out of whatever it is that's happening to them or help themselves improve their quality of life um, or reduce their symptoms. So for example, if you're a clinical psychologist and you're using something like cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of that will be about, um, for example, looking at evidence for thoughts, looking at, um, okay, so what are the, what are the things about this thought that are true? Like, are there things that contradict this thought? Um, things like behavioral activation, which is, um, Mm -hmm. it's a lot about making plans for, okay, so what are you going to do this week? What are you going to do to, because obviously a lot of the, for, for something like low mood or depression, a lot of the time people will just stop doing things because they don't feel like they want to. And they're like, Oh, I have no motivation. So I'm not going to do it. Um, so in CBT, a lot of it is um, kind of behavioral activation, getting people to go back to doing the things that they liked, even though they don't like them that much right now, they'll probably start to like them more as they keep doing them. Um, And then also exposure therapy, um, which is a big part of C, which can be a big part of CBT. So exposing people to situations that make them anxious or afraid um, and looking at what actually happened versus the expectations. So all of that is, and that's just one type of, um, that's one type of therapy um, that clinical psychologists are trained in. Um, That's the, that's the main evidence-based one in the UK that gets used. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so clinical psychologists have a much higher level of training. So it's a, it's much more than just kind of like unloading onto someone, I guess. Um, In fact, a lot of the time you actually want to encourage against that because like if someone spends an hour talking about their week i mean it's it's helpful to an extent but it's not actually helping it's it's they're not making any progress from it like things aren't going to be different um so a lot of the times as psychologists you kind of have to yeah you kind of have to fight against that to an extent um or find a way to like make it helpful so uh the other question i had about that just to follow up on it is uh it seems like there's indeed a certain amount of things which are in the book so to say so like I I just hear you discuss some kind of frameworks that you can use and can be trained in. So to what extent is it then still kind of like just someone's talent in being a specific type of person? And to what extent is it those frameworks that are going to help someone? Is there a lot of variance in the application of the techniques in that sense? I think it would really depend who you speak to. Okay. Um, depends who you ask. Um but I think for, yeah, for a clinical psychologist, I think um, yeah. I think to an extent, you know, I think the job does attract a particular type of person. Like yeah. at the end of the day, you're in the job. I mean, it's one of those things that you're encouraged not to say during an interview. But at the end of the day, everyone is in the job because they sort of want to help people or like that's yeah. one of the reasons they want to make people feel better. Like there and, is some why part you're not of them supposed to say that because um, it's a bit it's a bit of a wishy washy answer. Um, and it's not, yeah, we're not, we're not really encouraged to say it in interviews cause it, it's a bit as well. It, it shows there's a way of saying it that's okay, but it's, it can show a lack of realism as well, because a lot of the time as a psychologist, maybe you might be able to make some positive improvements, but sometimes you won't 
sometimes people's lives won't be better because you're in them and like you need to be able to manage that as a psychologist um so i guess Ooh, never it does about attract it a certain uh, say it again i never thought about it that way that it, it that you wouldn't be able to say that because if i would think about doing psychology it's the first thing i would think about yeah, I think, well, well, that's the thing, like, it, it's so valid, it's completely valid to want to help people and to want to make people better, but a lot of the times as psychologists, you actually can't make people better, and also, no, you know what, you can never make people better, only pe- people can make themselves better with yeah. your help, but, yeah. you, but you actually, you cannot fix someone, like, it's just not, that's... That's not a thing. Um, but you can help someone help themselves. So I guess it's about having that um, that idea in your head rather than the, I just want to help people feel better because you can't fix people. Um, yeah. So I guess, which, which like, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a bummer to say it out loud, but, like, it's something that you very much have to grapple with as a psychologist. Um, but, yeah, so I guess there's that side of it. There's the, there's the fact that it does attract a certain type of person and also a lot of the time that person will um they will be someone who their friends go to they will be very practiced at kind of their active listening you know like those basic skills of um you know like helping people talk things through but just that alone doesn't make a psychologist yeah Um, you need you need the training and uh yeah Exactly. Also, that's um, what I'm find. What we're finding more and more now, especially in the NHS, is that's only a very small part of what psychologists do. So, what psychologists do in the therapy room is obviously important, and it's something they're very yeah. good at. But there's a number of other things that um, that they do. So, for example, things like research, like research into practice. Everything that we do in services should be evidence based, and yeah. psychologists are the ones who need to do that research. Um, also leadership so psychologists are the ones who are leading teams um, or should or I don't know it's you know it's coming from a psychologist but should be the ones leading teams because they have the best evidence base for their treatments Um, and yeah just kind of they and also like helping their teams because in or the way it is in the NHS a lot of the time you don't get a whole team of psychologists you've got like two psychologists in a team in a whole team Um, so and then the rest of the team will be maybe nurses, occupational therapists, maybe a psychiatrist. Um, and psychologists can provide a lot of unique perspectives um, on kind of formulating someone's difficulties and kind of uh, having a full picture of someone's difficulties that other disciplines don't have. Mm. Um, so they have to they have to kind of lead in that way as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess in that way, being a psychologist is much more than just the the being in the room with us yeah so, yeah so, you know exactly i think uh it's a it's a good moment to switch topics a little bit and yeah, talk about your favorite topic oh stop my favorite thing to talk about covid19 which is no <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just kidding i'm just kidding i um, mean i i appreciate i appreciate everyone that's doing so much for it right now but um i really think i have nothing interesting to say I agree. Yeah. I have nothing interesting to say about it either, so I shouldn't probably. I too have nothing. I have nothing to contribute except a wealth of memes. Um, but yeah, those aren't. Relevant. Yeah, I, you have to be able I, to see them. It wouldn't be funny I, if I described them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it could be funny because it's funny how you try so hard, but then it's not funny, and that is oh, humor in itself. Yeah. Anyway, it's always that. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I want to talk about uh, about weightlifting because that's something that when we knew each other wasn't a thing, and then at some point I saw you lifting heavy weights, and I was like, and we didn't talk for like a year or two, and then we talked yeah. again, and this was all you were talking about. So I want to hear the story there. I want to unpack it. Oh well, let me tell you. Oh, gather round, everybody. So this was um, <laughs> so I. In my first year of college, um, I was going out with this greasy-ass Texan boy, and then he cheated on me, and it was terrible. It was, like, the worst time of my life. Um, but I kept running into it. So he had he had this friend, um, and I kept running into her outside of the gym, because at that time, I was, I was going to the gym. I was doing, like, I don't know what I would call, like, bog-standard gym, gym stuff, so, like... 
a bit of cardio and then some of the machines. Um, but she was going yeah. to the gym and she was doing, well, she was actually an Olympic weightlifter. So um, she was doing things like uh, the clean and jerk and the snatch. Um, so um, just quick, like just quick um, weightlifting 101 just before I start. So um, yeah. there's Olympic weightlifting, which doesn't mean that you go to the Olympics. It means that um, it means that you do the two Olympic lifts, which are the clean and jerk and the snatch. Those are both the overhead movements. Um, and then there's powerlifting. So powerlifting okay. is the squat, bench and deadlift. And that's what I do. Um, weightlifting okay. can, can refer to both. Um, when I hear weightlifting, I think Olympic weightlifting. But weightlifting can encompass both of those things and more. Um, Okay, yeah, so powerlifting so, is squats, deadlifts, and bench press. Yeah, mm -hmm, yeah. So okay, good. Yeah, um, gotcha. So I met her, and she, she was an Olympic weightlifter, but she was doing a lot of stuff like um, she was still squatting a lot um, and doing that sort of thing. So I was like, oh, this is really cool. This seems like a cool thing. And then the um, the powerlifting society at my university was just coming off the like just getting off the ground. Trinity barbell, whoop whoop, um, and the. And they had a an all female um, powerlifting group that they were going to run out at a gym called Revolution Fitness, which is out in North Dublin. It is a banging gym; would recommend it to anyone. Um, and we had an amazing coach, Sarah. Um, and I started going, and I've just I've never looked back since then, frankly. Like so, that was kind of September of twenty sixteen. Um, so I was just sort of. Um, I was just sort of starting to kind of... I was really, like, on the upward trajectory of, like, recovering. Um, started yeah. lifting weights um, and then did my first competition in January 2017 and just caught the bug. Like, there is something about being on a platform um, in front of a load of people who are screaming at you trying to lift something off the ground. Like, it is... Oh, it's so much fun. It is really... Yeah. And, and I think that... The thing about it was, I realised you don't you don't have to be strong to start with, like because I was not. I was, I'd like I'd lost a fair bit of weight anyway at that time. So I was like I was like fifty eight kilos. I was a little twig. I was so skinny. Like when I look back at photographs of myself from like when I was a teenager, I'm like, wow, she was so skinny. Um, <laughs> Like just such a tiny little twiglet, and that. So now I I weigh like a juicy seventy kilos. Um, I've gone up two weight classes, and um, yeah, it's it's great. I love it. It's just it's the best high uh, for me. It's the best high there is. Um, so yeah, and I just haven't looked back. That's awesome. So is is. Uh, the, the 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 training part and the uh, and the performing like or like the the competition part. I mean, you started with the training part, and and there you got into it. Like, what mm -hmm. do you think that makes you so into it? Is it is it the physical experience? Is it the feeling of growth that you get from getting mm -hmm. heavier every time or going heavier? It's one of the things I really love about it is that it's not about losing weight or about burning calories. Like, frankly, you don't like you barely burn any calories on a powerlifting session. Like maybe if you do a bit yeah. of cardio afterwards, you might, but you don't really burn any calories. Um, but you get to see yourself lift more and more. And that's the real, that's a buzz. The feeling of, so especially once, so like, especially even just like so being able to deadlift your body weight isn't like it's not that much of an achievement like it, it but it feels like the first time you do it it's such a big achievement and it's such a high yeah. like or when you can when you're in the gym and you're loading up your deadlift bar and some gross ass man looks across at you like she's not gonna lift that and you load up nearly twice his weight and then pick it up off the ground and then just look him dead in the eye like there's nothing like that <laughs> um yeah also just like you know seeing your body change as well like i think a lot of the time uh there's this huge misconception that like oh if you're a woman you'll get really manly if you lift weights that's not true if you take steroids you you'll get really manly yeah. This is it. I am not experiencing any mustache. In fact, I'd like more mustache. Um, like, imagine I could grow it out. It would be so good. Um, but yeah, so like, <laughs> but yeah, like it, like you, you, your body will change, but in such amazing ways. Like, I mean, to be fair, it's really hard for me to get trousers now. It's, it's honestly, it's, 
because my, my quads are so much bigger in proportion to the rest of my body, it's it's really hard to get jeans. Yeah, um, yeah. And there was a summer where suddenly none of my dresses fit me anymore because my back muscles were too big um, no to zip way. up over them. Yeah, it was it was amazing and it was so great, but also it was so <laughs> sad because I suddenly yeah. had to buy all new dresses. Um, uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of in some way it's frustrating, but also like when I look at the way I'm built now, I feel so happy. Like so, yeah. There's that part of it, but like. But the aesthetic part of it is only ever very small for me. Like I didn't, I didn't come into this sport wanting my body to look a certain way. I just wanted to pick up heavy shit and put it back down. Like that's <laughs> that's literally that's the pleasure of it. It's I feel like it's almost it's almost like an animal Neanderthal thing where it's just like mm, pick up heavy thing, put down. Like feels good. Like <laughs> just uh, yeah, it feels yeah. it feels good to be strong. Like. It feels good when I come home and, like, I come back to my parents' house and they're like, we have something we need you to move for us. We've been waiting for you to come home so you can move it. And I'm like, worry not, mother. I will move that for you right now. Like, yeah, it's it's great. It just <laughs> feels great. Yeah. Also, I think on a kind of micro level, when you're doing the reps, like, and there's just you and your music, um, just it's meditative in a way it's like you breathe like do your inhale do your rep you're counting you know you're breathing and counting yeah. like yeah that can be really nice also i think there's a great team aspect of powerlifting as well which people don't think about a lot of the time you'll do it at a powerlifting gym mm -hmm. or um as part of a university club like those are some of the best experiences of my life being like being part of a club and the people i've met because of powerlifting um has just been really life-changing so lots of things so like lots of things i love about it, it. Yeah. it's it's yeah. it's weird a lot of people kind of they're like oh it must be really scary it must just be loads of like huge men and i'm like no that's not that's not what powerlifting's like at all powerlifting is one of the most like people are so sporting in it like everyone's a good most people are a really good sport like they just want to see they just want to see you pick up the thing like everyone like it doesn't matter who you are like when you're at a powerlifting like competition even people who don't know you will cheer for you everyone will just cheer for you like especially if you're like you know you're having to grind out um a deadlift or something everyone will be screaming at you to get it like everyone <laughs> just everyone just wants to see each other do well and i think there's there's such a beauty in that that's so good so yeah. um i i always kind of put um but sports on a continuum of kind of like two extremes and mm. one is the kind of sport for which you, yeah, for which you can mostly use your smarts and techniques. So for me, mm -hmm. sports in that category are things like probably skiing, mm -hmm. uh, maybe to a certain extent skateboarding. Uh, and mm -hmm. then on the other side, there's the kind of things which require way more from your body rather than just your kind of talent in how you move, etc. So in mm -hmm. my mind, categories there is things like how Running. flexible you are. Uh, pro probably running, but mm. also deadlifting in my mind is kind of there. Mm. But I may be wrong. Maybe there's a lot more kind of in co compared to just having strength that you need for it. Maybe it's you can... really interesting you should say that because so I think I think that between the three lifts, um, there's like there's there's a variation on how technical they are. So for example. I'm not sure which I'd argue which is the most technical, but bench and squat are both incredibly technical lifts. Um, and squat, the squat is an incredibly mental lift because you've got this thing on your back. And usually, like if you're in competition, it will feel too heavy. It will feel like you're not, you, you, will, you will pick it up off the rack and you'll be like, I am not gonna be able to do this. And like, but most of the time you actually can, you're just not sure if you can. Right. Um, whereas deadlift is, in so, you know, it's, in some ways, it's the easiest lift to do because you just pick the thing up. Um, but a deadlift done wrong can hurt you almost more than a squat or a bench done wrong. Like the majority, I think, of of powerlifting injuries, there aren't many. It's actually a very low injury rate in the sport. Um, but I think the most injuries are probably from deadlift um, yeah. because there's actually a lot that can go wrong with it and a lot of kind of serious things that can go wrong. So things with maybe like, you know, you've got your your back, 
basically. Your whole back and glutes and hamstrings are at risk. Um, and then stuff like your biceps and your your fingers, your wrists, like it's all it's all to play for with those. Um, and so I think, yeah, anyone can do a bad deadlift, like can do a, a deadlift that looks ugly as hell. Like even me, like, okay, so before I came to my current coach, my deadlift yeah. was so ugly. Like, and when I look back at it, I'm like, wow, I really, I really let myself go. Um, and I could have done myself a real injury doing that. Um, and you know, I think to an extent, something one of my old coaches used to say was like, you don't get any points for pretty in a competition. And I agree. Like you don't get any points for how nice your lift looks. It's just whether you do it or not. Um, but also, there are ways of keeping yourself safe and ensuring your longevity in the sport that yeah so so for a deadlift i think a lot of the time people think that you don't have to think about technique um but you do like i'd say i agree with you that to an extent it's mostly it is mostly raw power so like out of the out of the three lifts it's the one that you can most like so for for a squat and a deadlift you don't want to come out onto the platform blind with rage, like screaming, <laughs> ready, like like, your chest, literally, like like yeah, like beating your chest, like you because you want because you need to keep a level head. You need to be able to think about what you're doing. Whereas for a deadlift, like you see it in competition all the time, people come out onto the like I come out onto the platform for a deadlift, especially like a third deadlift, screaming my head off. Like yeah. I've just had a face full of ammonia. I've been smacked on the back, like so there's just clouds of chalk coming off me and. And like I'm gonna scream my head off pretty much for that whole lift. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's the it's the lift that you can do that the most for. I, I've seen um, it. I love it. <laughs> it's so good. Honestly, there's nothing like it. Like, there's and you know I think I, I actually attribute because sometimes people are like, wow, you seem really like calm and level headed all the time. I'm like, that's because I have somewhere where I get out all of my rage. Like that's where that's where all my negative emotions go. They all go into lifting and. That's where I kind of. That's a lot of where I manage my negative emotions. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's so much fun. I I'd recommend it to anyone. Just give it a go. So, do you think that uh, when you progress, you need a one-on-one -on -one coach, or do you think that YouTube videos will suffice if you take the time to look up the right ones? Because mm. that, that that's more of a question, really, just for me, because mm. I'm the guy who always goes to YouTube and never gets uh, a life coach. Yeah, like well, that, I think yeah. it depends what you want to do. I think if you're not interested in being a serious... Like, if you're not interested in competing seriously, then I wouldn't I wouldn't spend... Or I'd only spend a very little amount of money on a coach. I wouldn't... Uh, like, I wouldn't spend a lot of money. Um, I think that there's always a benefit of a coach. But even within coaches, I mean, you say, you know, within YouTube videos that, you know, you got to find the right ones. But also with coaches, that's the case. Like, I've had a, I've had a wide, like, I mean, I've had maybe four or five coaches now. And they've all had different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Um, so, and also so there are some coaches there are some coaches who really don't know what they're doing as well. It's a bit like PTs. Like to become a PT, you don't actually need that much of a qualification. Anyone can be a PT nowadays. Yeah, yeah. And they actually PT being a personal them, trainer, right? Yes. Personal trainers. Anyone can be a personal trainer nowadays. Um, and a good number of those don't actually, well, they, they know a lot about a few things, but they don't know anything about powerlifting. Yeah. Like, this is, this is for me a frustrating thing in general, like the amount of, coaches and and trainers popping up that have so little experience and knowledge and mm. still call themselves a certain way take money yes. from people and mm -hmm. yeah this is one of my big time frustrations that's i, I, I get super I, i'm actually scared to get mm. coaches and things like that because in very often in different places i don't even know how to know if someone is qualified or not anymore mm. It's 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 funny, it kind of, to bring us back, it kind of reminds me of the same thing in psychology. Because there's, so a, therapist is not a protected term. Anyone can slap the word therapist on their door and do whatever they want. There is no, there's no regulation of that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think this, you know, I see the same, yeah, it's the same thing in the fitness industry. Like, and there's so many people who are like PTs um, or who are like, oh, I'm a coach now. And you're like, yeah, but what is your experience? Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think it can be really scary because you don't know who to trust. Um, uh, I guess my advice on that would be 
Um, it depends what you want, what you're trying to achieve. So if you want right. general fitness, um, I'd recommend going to a gym. Like go and go to a gym, see who they recommend, um, and then check that person out. Like ask them what their qualifications are. In the same way, you know, the same thing I'd say in a in a first therapy session um, would be the same thing I'd recommend in a first. Uh, consultation with a PT which is ask them what their qualifications are look up their qualifications like yeah. if someone's like oh and yeah look I'm at a what PT. they mean <laughs> yeah look up what they mean look out look up what the training is for that like and also like if you can say hey are there any of your other clients who I can speak to um also know that you can't you know that you're also paying for a service so if at a certain point you're like no i don't like the way this person works you can stop working with them it feels awkward to do yep, but in the yep. same way i always put it in this in the same way you wouldn't stay with a bad hairdresser um you wouldn't you know you wouldn't go back to someone if they gave you a bad haircut so why would you go back to either a a, a fitness coach who you're not happy with the way that they do things or a psychologist who you're not happy with the way they're doing things yeah I um, guess I guess the hard part is that in both of these cases there's a certain amount of ins un uncertainty um, mm, mm. that that takes place. Like like when it comes to mental health, for instance, I feel like it's quite hard sometimes to assess whether or not the person has done anything mm. very beneficial, or whether or not it was maybe just you or your circumstances or anything else. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Um, yeah, do you maybe have any? Uh, I know you read a lot and I love talking about books because I love reading. Are there any books that you've read in the past year that uh, you would recommend? Oh, good question. I know that's a big one, but... <laughs> Lots. So many. Um, so I read a really amazing book um, called The Choice by Edith Egger, I think her name is. Um, that is about a psychologist. Yeah. Uh, it's about a psychologist who she was... She's an Auschwitz survivor um wow. and yeah. that was that was amazing and that also uh resonated with me in a lot of the ways that she conducts her therapy um she has this um this amazing um kind of philosophy about like the only yeah she's right the only thing in life you can do is choose how you respond to it um and i think that resonates in a lot of a lot of the work that i'd want to do as a psychologist um so i guess that uh, on a completely different note, there's a book called Humble Pie by Mac Matt Parker. Uh, Matt Parker. Um, Matt Parker, it's a, Humble Pie. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a maths book. It's it's about maths. Um, okay. And it's it's about um, maths mistakes that people have made, and it just makes me laugh. And if you're a bit of a nerd um, like I am, it's really funny. Great book. Um, is it is it a is it a very illustrated book, or is it also good in would would it also be good in uh you could definitely listen to it absolutely yeah okay, you, cool. you, it's fine um it's fine to listen to um and i guess i'll just do one more so i guess my other one um would be i've got to recommend the boy the horse the fox and the mole um yeah. you know about this book i sent it to you for your birthday you gave it to you. It, yeah i absolutely loved it it found me at a good time it's it, it found me at a good time as well it's uh so it's it's mostly illustrated um and it's it's just it's it's about it's about life and about relationships and about lots of things but it's got some beautiful drawings in it and it honestly like from the first page i just cried for the whole book but in a really good way um so yeah it it will make you feel things um but hopefully hopefully in a good way I think. Yeah. yeah, so I guess those would be the ones for the moment that I would don't come to mind anyway. I've read lots of books this year, but Yeah. yeah. I'll put them uh, for sure in the show notes so people can uh, can have a look. Yeah, um, do. before wrapping up, is there anything you'd like to say to whoever's listening at this point? That kind of like a billboard message maybe the kind of thing that uh, people can take away. I'd say fill fill your fill your life up with things that you love. I guess, um, you know, like don't use them to distract you from your feelings, but right. make sure that you've got lots of like wholesome shit going on for you. 
like you know like find you know i mean powerlifting is is my exercise but like find an exercise that you love like and i think when people think about exercise they just think about like running or football and i'm like yeah. that's such a small population so i know like for you yap it's been kite surfing has been oh, yeah, big time. really changed like changed your life so you know like climbing dance like go go to a fucking dance studio like do just find yeah find a form of exercise that really like brings you joy and yeah just like fill fill your life with things that you love like you don't have if there are relationships that are like bringing you down or aren't like aren't a net positive in your life then just like oh it sounds it sounds so cheesy but just like don't waste time yeah like um go and find find things that spark joy you know as marie kondo would say exactly okay so if uh if people would want to connect with you where are you on the world of the internets oh well um so i guess you can put it in the share notes If if it's a professional thing then uh i've got linkedin if it's um for fun and for banter then i've got a an instagram page uh, it's called barbells and brains barbells and brains and it's a private page but um but yeah like i'll probably i'm not i'm not too discerning it's mostly just so people who i really don't want to see it can't see it right um yeah so i'm on that um yeah and i'm you you probably won't be able to find me on the facebook because i've got it locked down pretty tight um but yeah, just yeah, the Instagrams or the or the LinkedIn's, whatever awesome. you like. Yeah. All right, Rachel. It has been an absolute honor having you as my first uh, podcast guest Thank for Monaco you. Moments. It was yeah. an honor to be chosen. <laughs> You're the also chosen just one. Yeah, <laughs> just nice to hang out and chat as well. I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was it. The first ever episode of Monocle Moments. I'd love to hear your comments on what you thought of that first episode. Uh, feel free to reach out to Rachel. You can also follow me on uh, on the socials. So you usually find me under the name Yap van Beek. Uh, but you can also look at my website, jamesmonocle.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram at yapioapp. That is J-A-P-I-O-A-A-P. Thank you so much for listening and uh, hopefully see you in the next episode.